Episode 9, Paragliding. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Our show today is about paragliding with paragliding instructor Kelly Davis. Kelly Davis is the owner and operator of Colorado Paragliding. Kelly first flew way back in 1990 in Chamonix, France. By 1991, he was flying alone. In 1992, he got his instructor certification. In 1994, he started doing tandem flights, so he has over 20 years in the business. He's flown all over the U.S., including Alaska, California, Colorado, but these days, You'll most generally find him at Lookout Mountain right here in Golden, Colorado. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Kelly, please take a few minutes to tell our listeners more about paragliding, about your experience as a paragliding instructor, and also about your business, Colorado Paragliding. Yeah, I guess as a kid, I always, you know, you had those dreams about flying and before there was the term bucket list, there in France, I had my list of things you want to do before you die. I was jumping out of an airplane, and I saw the parallel flooding in France, and went, you know, it's probably the same thing. And to be honest, in 1990, it was probably closer to that than what it is today with the technology of our paragliding wings. And that's how I, I guess, got kind of first hooked into the sport and made the, the time commitment in 91 that that was something I was going to learn to do. And kind of with the pushing of a buddy of mine, we became instructors in 92. And I got enough flights and flight time in to become a tenant pilot in 94 and started turning that favor around and sharing the sport with a lot of a, a lot of people, a lot of good people that I've met over the years. Why would you encourage people to try paragliding? Well, first, I'm going to say it's not for everybody. You know, I, my mother went with me, but she wouldn't get my father's feet off the ground. So uh, it's it's encouraged for those who I think have a bit of a sense of adventure. Um, we actually get a lot of people that come out to fly with us that do say they have a, a little bit of a fear of heights. And to be honest, there is no such thing. It's the fear of falling. Because if they had a fear of heights, they wouldn't live in Colorado. They'd get somewhere close to the <laughs> level. <laughs> Good point. So it's not a true fear of heights. And uh, when we were doing the tandem flights in Alaska, there was the double black diamond face right there at the Alaska Ski Resort, and a lot of people walk up to the edge of the fence and look over and then step back, and I got to ask that question of them, and I said, but where you're staying now, you feel okay? And they would say, yes. I go, do you know you were at the same height as you were over there by the fence? You know, it's that, that sensation where they might fall. But with that paragliding, you're strapped in a harness. I remember as a kid riding chairlifts, and there wasn't even the bar that you could bring down. You were basically sitting on a padded piece of wood that was, you know, on a metal frame. Uh, we're here, we're basically, we're, we're strapped in. There's a bit more sense of security with it. And we we do a lot with some, some folks with it. And I think over the 20 years, um, there's just been one passenger. She was there with her twin sister and half-sister. We were in Aspen uh, during the tandem flight. Her half-sister got off on the flight. Her twin sister got off on the flight. And we went through our steps 
for starting our law. She actually just sat right down, and she said, I can't do this. You know, and she, I think she was there to support her other two sisters in getting off, and that part happened, and for her, I mean, that's not genetic now because her twin sister went off. Uh, she, she, just, <laughs> she just could not do it. So, and that's where I say, you know, it's not for everybody. I was going to be dragging her off the hill. It's like going, okay, you know, we're going to pack up and we'll talk a little bit about it as we're packing up. And again, it wasn't something that was going to be for her. She was kind of there as a support mechanism of the group and the two got off that needed to get off and we, we walked down the hill. Kelly, what's it like to be under canopy? You know, looking down at everything from that bird's eye view, is that the primary appeal of paragliding? Or is it more about steering that wing into the thermals and getting that sensation of flight or seeing how high you can go? Um, what draws you into the sport? I mean, for, for me at this point, is you, you get to relive kind of my first part of paragliding and the excitement of your feet off the ground and feeling a little bit like that bird's eye view you talk about. I've had a, a, a gal one time, she just threw her arms out and said, this is just like being on the bridge part of the Titanic, you know, um, feeling free and kind of flying with a breeze in your face. It's a different sensation, I guess. It's not a, a cliff jump, you know. We pull the wing up. There's a little bit of a tug of war that's going on with getting the wing, you know, into an airfoil. And sometimes we run a little bit farther, depending on what the air is in our face for takeoff. And that's part of what we do as an instructor is assess the conditions and talk with our passenger on what we need to do to be able to put that wing in the air. And opposed to somebody who wanted to go learn on their own, which sometimes this is a first step for them, is saying, you know what, I'm going to test the waters first before I decide something that they want to do. Because learning to fly solo is a bit more of a commitment, especially if you're going to come and want to fly golden. Uh, golden is a bit more of a technical fight. So that person standing at the bottom saying, I want to do what you do, meaning as a solo pilot, they're going to have to go get instruction. They're going to have to log 60 flights first before they can come to Golden. And then they got 10 flights that will be sponsored flights. And that sponsor's feet is on the ground while that person is flying. And that's just to make sure, you know, they abide by kind of the rules of the air, the fight, and have a safe flight because of the technicality of the front range side of Golden. It can be unforgiving at times. Nothing to be taken lightly. You guys are serious about making sure that people do it safely so they can live to do it another day, right? Correct, correct. So we, we basically take about two hours of a person's time uh, to introduce the sport of paragliding. It's considered an instructional flight. So they're going to learn something about paragliding depending upon the air conditions. They can actually fly the paraglider. And, I mean, it's like being right in a Cessna airplane, except for the pilot isn't sitting next to you. We're sitting right behind you. You can hear what's what's going on. We do have a little bit of air speed sound in our, as we're flying. We're about 20 miles an hour. So some people go, oh, I didn't know it would be so windy out here. Well, it's not really wind. It's the air in our face created by our airspeed going through the air uh, for that. So we can do, you know, an experience of paragliding where they can walk away from it, take the memories, and and have that, or say, you know what, this is something that I want to do long-term. And if they want to go learn, 
They can do what's called like a P1 course, an introductory course. It's like three days. Uh, that's not going to get them much other than probably their feet off the ground with just them on the canopy. Here in the front range, to learn to fly, to get a rating that's going to mean anything to go to other sites as a P2 rating, and P is for paragliding. It mirrors the hang gliding, which has the H's in it. So it's a one through five rating system. So a P2 or an H2 is what allows a hang glider paraglider pilot to go to some other sites that are rated for them. On the front range, you're probably looking anywhere. If you had seven full days, good weather, you might be able to get that P2, but you're probably somewhere between the range of seven to 30 days probably to try to, to get that rating. It just depends on how the flights go, weather goes, and learning weather is the biggest part probably about this part. Learning the flying part is simple. And I use scuba diving a lot as a, an example. It's nothing to put a regulator in mouth and breathe. We breathe every day, and we don't really think probably much about our breathing. And the same thing with scuba diving. You put that regulator in mouth, and you go diving. The big part about learning about scuba diving is, is what is the physics going on with your body going down at depths with compressed air, and what are the consequences of your actions should you bolt to the surface or do something different or be down too long. So in paragliding, the flying part is simple, but there are other things that we need to be aware of too in emergency situations of what do I need to do to get out of the sky because of pending dark clouds that are maybe dropping rain or something like that that may create dust fronts that you don't want to be in the air for. You have to be able to see the invisible a little bit, I would take it. Um, you, you, Yeah. <laughs> You look at reports, um, you get some surface wind forecasts, you get some winds aloft information, uh, you look at some temperature differentials. So there's a lot of things that can guide you along in what we call as micrometeorologists. You're knowing a little bit about the weather that is in your area and also maybe what the bigger air mass is that's affecting that. Fascinating. So, yeah, I'm not going to tell you how many inches of snow we might get, but I could probably tell you whether we're going to be able to fly or not. <laughs> okay. Take us to a time when you flew that just really knocked your socks off, uh, an experience you had that said, I've got to do this, that really hooked you on the sport. Um, I was living as a pet in Vail, actually, when I had been learned to fly. I'd gone over to Afton and learned from the school there. And for the most part, paragliding came from most, you know, they say mountaineers running off mountains in Europe. After climbing the mountain, they found it as a quick descent away from the hill uh, technique. And I had been a mountaineer. I climbed over 14 years in Colorado. And I actually was looking to say, what was my next adventure after I climbed my last one? And that was the summer of 91 when I had finished climbing North Maroon up there in the Aspen area. So I made it easy to walk in the paragliding shop and say, you know, what, what's, what's my next adventure? And it became paragliding. Uh, but living in Vail, we heard stories about people kind of beginning high. And again, the... Paragliders in the early 90s are, are nothing in the construction the way they are today. You had to be more lucky than good to get your paraglider to go up. Uh, some of it was getting the right air and just being in the right space and going with it. Uh, the technology of the wings to be able to catch smaller bubbles of air and things like that just wasn't there yet. We had been flying in the morning 
I actually uh, had my tandem gear at that point, and I remember we were driving back up the hill to retrieve my vehicle, and the winds were still blowing up, which was unusual for the Valley of Vales, because usually your, your valley wind started taking over and everything would go crosswise. So with that, the guy that rode up and we had our ham license, he said, I'll just switch over to the ham frequency, and he said, I'll give you a ride up again if you fly. So I went out, took my gear out, and I thought, oh, we'll give this a shot. So I launched, was flying out, and this is near the golf course. It's uh, East Vale, the launch area that we were at. Uh, Spaddle Creek, the people know the Bell area, just outside of the wilderness boundaries where we had a launch point uh, for that. And I thought, well, you know, this should be good. Warmer during the day, there may be more thermal, I might get some more lift, and something might happen. And nobody ever gotten high in Bell yet. And it just turned into just almost like a regular flight coming down, and then there was this little bubble of air. And so I just kind of kept turning and playing this little bubble of air, and I just thought, you know, all I'm going to do is entertain golfers for a while, and they make them make bad shots or something uh, with that. <laughs> but that little bubble of air from, and again, I was only probably 300 feet from landing. For the most part, I would just put myself in the airspace where I would set myself to come in to land, and I found this little bubble of air. All right, I, More likely, it probably just found me is the, the better way of saying it. It was pure accident. And that little bubble of air kept working up. Next thing I know, I'm up at the launch point again, which is about 10,000 feet. And I rode that thing up to 13,000 feet, and then I rode down the Vale Valley. And at that point, you know, we were trying to get more paragliding on the Vale Mountain. And the uh, risk manager with Bell had met with us, and he wasn't too happy with us, but part of it was his own fault. And this is maybe bad to say. I'm not going to say his name. Uh, he had a fax from his uh, insurance company saying, do not allow parasailing on your mountain. You're not insured for it. Well, we told him we didn't want to parasail. We thought boats would tear up the ski runs. You know, he, he the technology of parasailing or paragliding, he got the, the wrong word with it. So he wasn't too happy with us when he, he got his fax <laughs> wrong. But anyway, Two completely different sports. Yeah, so Aspen has an agreement with the ski company, keep your distance from the gondola, so that nothing happens, nobody falls in the ground of the line. Well, you know, we were trying to establish the same thing, saying, you know, there could be rules, you know, like not falling over the ground, more like Aspen and things like this. And, well, he didn't want to have a thing to do with it. So I made sure I flew over the ground And I was high up there, and a couple of the other guys had learned to fly. They were like looking, going, where did I take off from? They thought I took off from Mount Baldy, which is on the north side of the Valley Valley, way up there. With it, because uh, again, nobody ever gotten high in Bell. You know, all of a sudden they, they see this, you know, yellow glider and it's way up there. <laughs> so that was probably the one that kind of said, you know what, this is really cool because you can go up in these things and depending on, I call it like a Donkey Kong game. You know, as long as you keep getting wins, keep getting lift and rising on up, you know, you can maybe try to move to the next one. So if you have some sinking air losses, and try to get your next win and go again. Who would sell nearly everything they own, then pack up and travel for three years around the world alone on a motorcycle? Alan Carl did. Pick up his new book, Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. 
an adventure that will awaken your senses and inspire your spirit. Explore 35 countries on five continents with stories of connection and culture, more than 700 stunning photos, flavors, and food. Visit ForksTheBook.com and use promo code 180TACK to get $9 off through April 15, 2015. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in Ellie, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com. That's P-I-R-A-G-I-S.com. Or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at one 800 That's fascinating. So you said you made it up to about 13,000 feet. What is the ceiling? How high can your wing go? The highest I've been is 17.5. There's a, I'm going to call it a hole in the sky down in the Telluride area that hang glider pilots tend to use with permission of the FAA. Our limits, because we are regulated in a way by the FAA, we are considered ultralight. So there is rules that kind of govern us as pilots in the air. So 18,000 feet is the positive control area, our limit would be essentially 17999 So that's how high you can legally go as long as that airspace is uh, open to us. There are places along here with the front range with the Denver International Airport, obviously at altitudes of 15,000 feet, you better not be in because you're in controlled airspace to that airport. It's like an upside-down wedding cake, this added. Much more of a smaller circle right around the airport, but as the aircraft come in and out, they go up those layers of the wedding cake and extend on out to 30-some miles uh, from the DIA airport. With that, you're in that airspace. you got to have permission. And when we were flying in Aspen, we'd have that with the airport in Aspen as well. One side of the mountain is... Not in the airspace, the other side, you'd have to have permission, and it's just a matter of calling them and letting them know, and they would put out a, uh, it's called a NOTAM, a notice to airmen, uh, that there was paragliding activity in the vicinity of Aspen Mountain. Wow, 18,000 feet is amazing. There's not a mountain in Colorado that'll take you much above 14, so... And actually, on that flight, I flew over Castle Peak. I was, uh, we launched, this was in September, and Aspen, there were some of us that launched on the uncontrolled side with that in the morning, and we were getting high. We asked for permission to fly on the other side of the mountain as we were coming over as the, the morning was progressing and you're getting sun for heating on the other side. One of our younger pilots, he had about 90 flights under his belt, brought up the question saying, hey, you think we could fly at Crested Butte? And prior to that, there have been several people who had tried, and two people actually had made it. So with that, the bug got kind of in the ear of a couple of us. This pilot made kind of a critical error in his valley crossing. He crossed at the furthest distance that he had to cross. Therefore, there's a lot more sinking air there, and I watched him as he fell right on down into the valley. And call out a young pilot with only 90 flights under his belt, 
they probably learn from that and go, wow, don't go along this into the middle of the valley where the sinking cold air is. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. actually made my valley crossing by going backwards. Shortest distance between two lines isn't necessarily a straight line and paragliding. It's, you know, what is the shortest distance between here and my next heat source for lifting air? So I actually went backwards to get over on the ridge system that feeds into Castle uh, Creek and Castle Peak at the end. Uh, the other pilot, He'd gone down the, the ridge and went around the box of the valley. So essentially came to be two of us that were looking at going on over. And once he committed and went over in the valley, I at that point got up to, towards Castle Peak and crossed that over at 16,000 feet. And I could see that he was getting hit by a wall of stronger air in the valley. And it looked like he was just riding an elevator. He wasn't going very forward. He was just still flying and just basically going straight down with that. So with that, that's why I knew to have altitude as my friend and got up to 17.5 and made a beeline towards the Crested Butte, the peak with it. And then once I got over there, I knew I could make the town with Crested Butte. So with that, we basically hitched a ride on the Cessna out of Crested Butte. I mean, we called somebody who had one uh, to get back to Aspen, but that was my 17,500-foot flight. What a ride. That's that's amazing. You know, I've climbed the mountains that you're talking about, so I know the area just from the ground, and beautiful place to, to fly. The scenery must have been unbelievable, but just the accomplishment of making it over all of those mountains, that's really neat. That's fun. Yeah, it is. Aspen is uh, an incredible place to fly, and it's one of those places that, uh, for the most part, you can fly year-round here in the front range. When we get the snow, which I've shoveled it a bunch of times today and yesterday, uh, it's on the mountains behind it. It works like a refrigerator. This is part of the microbiology. It just refrigerates the air around it. Cold air becomes more dense, and it just wants to sink. So during the winter months, we get a lot of westerly flow because it's just cold air sitting on the mountains coming down here in the front range. With that, right. where when we get the summer months, snow is gone, sun is heating all the surfaces, creating warm air that wants to rise up, and that's where we can fly just about every day in the summer. So share with us a story about a time that things didn't go like you planned. This is a winter flight that I had in Aspen. Uh, it was a tandem flight, and I had a young guest on my wing who actually flew with me earlier in the week. Well, fab, it's ski season, and he'd come by and said, hey, my dad says I can go again. He was probably all of about maybe 100 pounds. And to be honest with you, on a tandem wing, it's got a range for your passenger to fly in. And 100 pounds is on the very lower end of it. Technology of the wing is getting a little bit better. About 60 pounds is what I really need to have somebody to be able to fly. So 100 pounds, we, we were still pretty good. We got in the air having a nice flight, and then uh, we got a call that one of the clouds down the valley started releasing some energy, okay? And that's going to send cold air down out of that. And it's like taking a glass of milk, pouring out of your kitchen floor, it's going to go everywhere. The energy is dispersed, but if you pour it in a rain better, it's only got two ways to go, up valley and down valley. So it's got a lot more energy in it. Right. Um, so we made a beeline past our landing zone area so that we could hopefully absorb any of that uh, dust front to come and hit us. And if we, we beat it, we're, we're in and we're okay. Well, we got past our landing zone, and we started getting the pops of the dust front much stronger winds. Uh, they were uh, strength of wind stronger than what our 
penetration rate is, so we wind up flying backwards. Essentially, what's happening? We're still flying, but we're flying in an air mass that is stronger than what our forward airspeed is. So the appearance is that we're going backwards. We got pushed uh, a couple of different times, and as we're still working our way down closer to the ground, we got where well, we got pushed out of our landing zone area. We're in an alternate field, and I remember the, uh, the young kid saying, "Hey, there's some power lines below us." Are we okay? And I told him, I said, you know, we are because I know exactly where they are, and either we're going to get pushed behind them, or I'm going to let up on our brakes, which is kind of increasing our pressure of our cells to keep out any deflations and things like that, which will make us take a dive, and we're going to dive right in front of them. So we were kind of just hovering over them as we were sinking down, and we didn't get another gust push, so we were able to take the dive and go right forward and land in front of them. So that's Probably most curious fight um, in the sense of, you know, having to make a lot of decisions and decisions that you're not always having the control because you're at the mercy of those desperate winds. From that, obviously, respecting the air is a big part. And I think from that point on, I wind up canceling a lot more flights uh, than may be necessary uh, with that, a lot more cautious on the side of being safe for that. Uh, the landing zone there in Golden is much smaller. It's not as forgiving with that. Although there is the uh, school of mines across the, the way of the highway, lots of open space, but school of mines refers we don't make emergency landings there. Wow. So what you just illustrated for the listeners there is how much value that experience has. I mean, you were able to assess a situation, there are power lines there, and you knew I've got option A, I've got option B, and you probably had a C, D, and an E on the list too, but you knew exactly what you had to do to avoid those lines. I, I would not have even have thought of that being a completely inexperienced flyer, right? So there's a lot of value and listening to people that have been through it and learning from them. Yeah, I knew they were going to go backwards or forwards, and it was better to be right above them uh, as we were sinking down, because then I had those two choices versus being in front of them and pushed back towards them or something like that. As an instructor, how does your training help people to safely succeed in sport? The tandem side, we do a big briefing on the drive up the hill. We, we meet in the landing zone area and have a chance to uh, go over some paperwork. And there's a, essentially a quiz that's on the paperwork that's required by the United States Hangling and Paragliding Association. Out of those questions are some things that says, you know, you understand you got to run sufficiently together with your instructor to fly, and that you can hamper control by hanging on anywhere on the paraglider other than instructed. So we try to take those questions and break it down a little bit more into, you know, what we need from them to fly. Um, I remember there was a gal that I dated, and we had three flights, and they were the three most extreme flights that we have. And these are the different kind of conditions that you have for, for takeoff. One, we had very strong winds. This is in the Vail Valley area, uh, Walcott to be exact. Uh, we probably sat for an hour as we had the strong winds, and one of the solo pilot guys finally launched into the air, and said, you know what, it's just the compression of the air right at the hill, because out here I don't feel the, the strong winds I can motor around, and I'm, you know, he's moving with airspeed, okay? So with that, I got two assistants to hang on for the tandem, and the gal that I was aiming as my passenger 
basically they held her and me as we got the glider up off the ground, overhead, stabilized. I said, okay, we're good. And we just basically rode like an elevator straight up out of that compression zone, and then we went out to fly. She didn't have to run anywhere, okay? Wow. She was being held there by two guys, all right? And she was in Alaska with me where we had very little wind, and, of course, she didn't run at first, and so the canopy kind of came up and said, oh, we weren't flying. So I went over and we, we chatted about the different experiences. Cause one of the, the other fight that we had is we had some moderate wind where, yeah, you have a little bit of a run, and you go with that. If you have a lot of wind, you don't have to run very far, but you got to do a lot of canopy control. And if you have very little wind, you have to make up all the airspeed over the airfoil to be able to make it fly into the air. And that's what we had there in Alaska, where it's like, well, yeah, we're going to have to run away to make this thing fly. So she got kind of extreme with it. So those are the sorts of conditions that you talk about to your tandem customers, helping them understand what you have to do to get into the air. Once you're in the air, do they get to uh, control the wing a little bit? Depending on the, the fluffiness of it. So if we're having a, a very thermic flight, it might be a little too bumpy until we get away from the hill for them to be able to take controls. But I would say over half the flights, there's an opportunity for them to be able to fly with it. Flying part is, is simple. You pull right, you turn right, you pull left, you turn left. And I say pull right and left for those who don't know. That brake lines, control toggles, people use different terms for it. It goes to the trailing edge of your airfoil. And just like a Cessna airplane putting ailerons on, if you put drag on one side of the wing and the other side of the wing is flying faster, it's going to turn on that drag side. So if I'm pulling drag on my right side, my left side is going to fly faster, my left is going to go to the right. So for right, for right, for left, for left. Um, that's the simplicity of it, like putting that regulator in your mouth and just breathing underwater. Uh, could be a bit more tricky involved than that. And there's there's rules to the air because we got other paragliders that are out there. You gotta know your airspace to be in. And for golden, there can be depending on which direction the winds are, bad places to be with where the wind is one day where the next day it's okay to be in that space. Hmm. So you need to have some understanding of the of the area and the conditions for certain. Yes. Well, hey, take a moment and tell us a little bit about your company, Colorado Paragliding, and how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in trying the sport? And another question I have here while you're while you're at it, I know that at least there used to be what they called accelerated free fall in skydiving, and tandem dives gave you a free fall experience and allowed you to advance a little bit more quickly into the sport. Is there anything like that in paragliding? Um, tandem teaching, which is what they were doing in Aspen, and also up in Alaska, and I'm not sure if they'll use as much of that model. Um, it's like getting in a Cessna with a pilot, and you go out and fly and say, here, now you take the controls. The beauty of, for those that want to learn themselves, if they're involved in a school that uses tandem as part of the teaching, is the instructor's right there. And when we were doing the tandem teaching program for acceleration on it, they would get four ten flights. The first flight is basically the pilot doing the show and tell. Uh, we'll actually do classes on the wing and things that they will be doing on their solo wing as they progress with their skills. So the second flight, we'll launch the glider, we'll hand the controls over, and we'll have them do some of the collapsing of the wings and the recovery so that they get the feel of it. 
The third and fourth flight, we basically lost the glider, hand the controls over, and we as the tandem pilot are silent. They're relying on an instructor on the ground with a radio for their flight. And they're basically just going to fly smooth flights. They're not going to do any collapses or anything like that. They're simulating what their solo flight is going to be. And they'll actually land the wing, which as a tandem pilot is the scary part for us because here you have somebody who has really no idea of how much energy that may be needed on a tandem wing for uh, doing the collapse of the wing. In the meantime of these flights, they've had classroom work. They've been doing ground school with a solo canopy. They just have not put their feet in the air necessarily yet uh, for that. So uh, a tandem program can accelerate that because you're getting more hands-on in the air right away and can speed up their process versus from school and from one of the way that I learned a little bit where you're hiking up the hill and running down and balling it up and going a little higher up the hill until your feet really get a little higher off the ground. And so in 2009, we kind of came together as the Colorado Paragliding Offering, uh, a professional tandem approach flight there in Golden. You know, we typically have four or five tandem pilots, uh, not necessarily all at the same time. Um, not something that we can make a, a living off of. Not much flying during the winter time with it. Uh, so it's kind of a a fun way for us to support being in the sport and sharing the sport with people. Uh, one man is a pilot, and he has 20 years plus of flying as well. Um, kind of calls us ambassadors of the sport. We have a chance to allow people to look in, feel, experience what we do as pilots flying there in, in Golden, Colorado, um, paragliding. Um, sometimes we have hang gliders up there. We get a chance to, to see them as well, and we can compare and contrast visually what they see in the hill of other flying. So they get kind of the full experience of what paragliding is in a short two-hour window versus spending three, five, thirty days learning to fly on their own. But it's a good chance for them to make that decision point is it's something they really want to do. I've had people who, unfortunately, I, I call it, I corrupted them. I introduced it to them, and they became pilots. Yeah, that's fun. So it's the best way to find you to just uh, Google Colorado Paragliding? Or go right to coloradoparagliding.com. But uh, we found in the search engine, coloradoparagliding.com. Go straight there. Uh, or Google for Golden Paragliding, and they'll find us. We're also on uh, colorado.com for the tourism website for Colorado. Kelly, do you have any special promotions for our listeners? If they buy a gift certificate and we send an email with that, what we'll do is we'll tag that and we'll have a promotional item for them when they come out and redeem their certificate this summer. So we'll do that through the end of March 30th, 2015. We'll take care of them. On behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for that special offer. I hope that tons and tons of people take advantage of that. It's a great opportunity to learn a sport that I'm personally very fascinated with. We really appreciate your time today. For our last question, we'd like to know how you feel that the sport of paragliding benefits people or society as a whole. I think it's a natural high, to be honest with you. It's one of those just incredible... I guess it's like going on a powder day, maybe, if there are those that are skiing. You're out there. As for society, um, we do several charity you know, with our, our program. Uh, most of the charity fights that we do, they're fundraisers for them, um, are those that are in the educational area. 
uh, where they're serving a lot of other other people with that. Uh, we certainly like the outdoors. Colorado uh, Bound has been a big one we've done a lot with, so I have a lot of ties there. We've done some with the outdoor lab schools uh, with Jefferson County. And we operate with a permit from the Jefferson County Open Space. So we do a lot of community stuff with, with that. We, we enjoy sharing in other ways that help other people too. Well, Kelly, thank you very much again for your time today and for introducing us to paragliding and your company, Colorado Paragliding. Hi, Kurt. I look forward to getting your uh, shoelaces off the ground. We're going to have to do that. Hey guys, will you help us make the Adventure Sports Podcast successful? Take a few minutes to rank us on iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe, rank, review. Thanks. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.